I think it's, it's probably, this is an exaggeration, but I, I think it's probably one of every elementary school kid's worst case scenarios. Okay, getting picked by a team captain last on the playground. And I won't try to elicit your sympathy, though I'm tempted to, <laughs> by telling my own stories as a guy who hovered around like upper fours, maybe at most five feet tall, <laughs> until I was 16. Suffice it to say, to all of you people out there who are smaller, I can relate. <laughs> you know, the whole logic of picking teams is, is built on this concept of partiality, isn't it? As, as a team captain, you're supposed to do what? Evaluate the merits of the masses that are in front of you according to their athletic prowess, assign more worth to some, less worth to others, and choose your team accordingly, right? And, and woe to the dad who appoints himself team captain and violates all of those rules by choosing one of the little kids too early in the name of kindness. Now, you could argue that choosing teams on a playground is harmless enough. Okay, some of you right now are thinking, just stop being so sensitive and enjoy playing the game. I sympathize with that and largely agree with that. But, but the trouble, of course, let's be honest, is that the underlying instinct, okay, that oh-so-human tendency to judge people, to assign a relative worth or value to them, and then to treat them accordingly, that wreaks havoc, my friends, in countless areas of life. It's the problem of prejudice, isn't it? the sin of favoritism. You know, why is it that we respect people who agree with us politically and count them our friends, but deride and relationally distance ourselves in person or online from those who think differently? You know, why do we try to spend all our time around people who talk like us? or dress like us, or, or share our skin color, and, and keep a healthy distance from those who don't? You know, why, why do people who are new to a neighborhood or a community feel like it's hard to, to break in to an existing circle of relationships? Or why does someone who knows somebody get the promotion when you're the employee who's more qualified? I don't think I have to convince you that, that favoritism destroys morale in the workplace. It, it sows bitterness among siblings. It, it fractures nations, divides cities, triggers wars, and, listen, is one of the oldest enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, it is the reason, friends, that Jews disdained Gentiles and despised Samaritans in Jesus' day. And dare I say, it's the reason that white and black people tend to worship in separate churches in our own. This is a personal issue. This is a social issue. 
It is very much a, why do you have to go meddling in my business pastor kind of issue? And it is the very issue the Lord graciously addresses in James 2, 1 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? With evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, James has just finished exhorting us at the end of chapter one to be obedient doers of the word. If you were with us last week, uh, by expressing compassionate personal care for the weak. For, for people in messy situations where, where love is anything but neat and tidy. It, it's what living as a new spiritual creation, a, a redeemed man or woman made alive through faith in Christ looks like an action. And, and as James is pressing home this claim, his heart as a pastor is, is filled with affection for his hearers. I hope you saw in verse one, they're, they're his brothers and sisters. And it's because of that affection, friends, that, that James is also deeply concerned for the condition of their souls. And he wastes no time in delivering a very clear word of correction and admonition. Look at verse 1. My brothers show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, in other words, what's he saying? If you're going to hold fast to faith in Jesus, 
if you're going to be a Christian, that there's something else you can't hold on to at the same time. You can't hold on to Jesus and practicing favoritism. You have to stop judging people by the standards of this world and valuing them and treating them differently as a result. Now, let me just say at the outset that I think to the ears of postmodern culture, much of the world around us, what I just said doesn't sound remotely controversial. (laughs) Okay, of course you should be tolerant and give people the respect they deserve, right? I mean, favoritism and discrimination are, are pretty much the cardinal sins, the thou shalt not go there's of our day and age. We're told it's wrong. On some level, we know it's wrong. And HR departments around the country bend over backwards to make sure you don't forget. And so you could argue... Maybe you're wondering right now, pastor, is a sermon on partiality really necessary? Well, I think it is, friends. Because our society, for for all our affirmations of tolerance, is not becoming more unified, loving, or compassionate. If, If social media tells us anything, we're actually heading in the opposite direction, aren't we? And that should cause you, whether or not you're a Christian, to question, at a minimum, whether our training on tolerance and our attitude toward other people is really getting to the root of the partiality within us and around us. James chapter 2 says it is not. Why not? Because the driving force behind every expression of favoritism is not your attitude toward men. It is your attitude toward God. Our tendency to show partiality toward one another on on a horizontal level, please hear this, isn't going anywhere until we give attention to our relationship with God on a vertical level, which is exactly what James does in these verses. He shows us, he reveals just how big a deal our tendency to favoritism really is by pointing out four of the underlying vertical problems. By implication, the only true solution. So let's look at these four together. Okay, Why is favoritism such a big deal on a vertical level? Point number one, favoritism denies the truth of the gospel. It denies the truth of the gospel. Okay, look look at verses two to four. So here James summarizes basically what seems to be happening in this church community. So, So you've got a man who is successful or rich by the world standards coming in, and he gets treated with respect and honor. And then you have another man coming in who's unsuccessful or poor by the world standards. He comes in and he gets treated with disdain to the point of being humiliated. Now, it helps to remember here that, that seating your place at the table at a dinner or, or a gathering of some kind in the ancient Near East was a really big deal, a, a bigger deal than it is for us today. But, but it, it reflected a very real economic hierarchy of personal worth and value. And I would argue that our culture might be different. 
But friends, the exact same kinds of prejudice are alive and well in us today. Let me give you a few examples. Hello, sir. So good to see you today. I don't think I've met you before. Your your whole family's looking pretty sharp, if I do say so myself. And all your kids are carrying Bibles? My, oh my. I see you put a high value on biblical discipleship. Well, we do too. So good to see you. Why, Why don't you come up and sit with my family today? Oh, well, excuse me for just a minute. Hey, could, could you guys just move back a row or two? My, my family usually sits here, and we have some visitors joining us today. Thank you so much. I can't believe their kids are playing video games in church. And did you hear how disrespectfully that girl just spoke to her mom? I bet that's the girl that gave the seven- to eight-year-old's teacher last week so much trouble. Did you hear about that? I wouldn't want them rubbing off on my board. Did you notice there's no dad with that family? I bet they're divorced. Oh, so unfortunate. Example two. Hey, did you see a Mexican family moved into that house down the street? How do you know they're Mexican? Well, they're obviously not Americans. They're probably not even legal. Well, I was thinking we could walk over tonight, introduce ourselves, and invite them to the community group cookout we're hosting this week. Really? But they don't speak English. And we don't speak Spanish. Awkward. I'm just hoping they do something about that front yard. The whole place has been falling down for years, and odds are those Hispanics won't do anything about it unless I get the HOA involved. I told you I would start meddling. (laughs) Well, think about this with me, okay? Now that I've got you riled up, is it wrong to notice ways people are different? Including whether someone is rich or poor, black or white, educated or less educated, meticulously landscaped front yard, or just a patch of dirt. Is it wrong to notice those things? No, not at all. There's nothing wrong with observing a difference, or or even recognizing some of the unique challenges in relating to someone who's different than you. The problem, friends, comes, please hear this, when we assign worth or value to people on the basis of those differences and then respect or reject them accordingly. And that's what James means in verse 4, look there, when he says you have made distinctions among yourselves. You're creating these hierarchies of significance. You're practicing favoritism. But you know, there's an even deeper issue in play here, isn't there? Look again at verse 4. He says you have made distinctions among yourselves and, what else? Become judges with evil thoughts. Okay, you've adopted a posture of superiority, taking on a role that's not yours. How so? Because the rightful judge isn't you, right? It's God. And though you might think, and I might think, we can do his job for him, what's James saying? Our thoughts are the polar opposite of his. 
when we're practicing favoritism. No, no matter how many other people share the prejudice you do, God doesn't. And that is what makes our thoughts and judgments evil, friends. God doesn't share them. So think about it. What is it that makes God's thoughts and judgments different than our own? Well, look at verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? What's James saying? He's saying that that Jesus doesn't extend his hand of mercy and salvation to the self-sufficient or the self-assured, right? To those who think they have something with which to commend themselves, whether materially or spiritually, and are maybe even esteemed accordingly by everyone around them. Jesus doesn't favor those who are rich in the eyes of the world. Whether your world defines riches as material prosperity, or voting for the right party, or acquiring advanced degrees, or practicing philanthropy, or or having a specific skin color, or living in the right neighborhood, or even reaching a certain level of Christian maturity. Okay, Jesus chooses. Jesus grants the gift of saving faith, and, and Jesus eternally rewards those who come to him with what? With empty hands, with poverty of spirit, who, who despair of ever earning anything from him and cast themselves wholly on his mercy. And let me just say, James is saying this, and so did Jesus. It's a lot easier to do that if you're financially poor than if you're financially rich. So while being poor doesn't automatically earn you anything special from the Lord, Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 3 remain very true. What does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's it's the great reversal, right? It's the upside-down logic of the gospel. So so whenever we practice favoritism, whether you prefer the silent or the verbal approach, we're we're functionally saying the exact opposite of that. We're denying the gospel. We're evaluating people as if our worth and value comes from what we do or don't do instead of from what God has done for us in Jesus. And the Lord will have none of that, friends. Because he's jealous for his glory. He doesn't honor the rich. The the people who say, people like us in a thousand ways, thank you God that I'm not like other men. He honors the poor. And the sad and sobering reality is that the sort of people that we often disdain or even avoid as Christians are often the very sort of people that our Lord delights to save That's the first problem. Favoritism denies the truth of the gospel. Here's the second. Favoritism reveals the insanity of sin. It reveals the insanity of sin. Look at verse 6. James adds a second reason here for not showing partiality. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here's, here's my translation. You guys are nuts. 
You've gone crazy, okay? You're, you're fawning all over the rich people who show up to your worship gatherings, currying their favor, attempting to ingratiate yourselves, all the while forgetting that most of the troubles you're experiencing in life right now are caused by these very sort of people. They're not benefiting you at all. They're harming you. I mean, guys, if you're going to show some partiality, if we're going to go there, okay, and give some preferential treatment to people, it would make sense, at least in the world's eyes, to do what? To favor someone who will scratch your back in return. Well, you guys are apparently doing the exact opposite, James says. I mean, even from the pragmatic viewpoint of the world, your favoritism makes no sense. Well, it's not a side point, friends. It's an illustration of the insanity of sin. I mean, think about this. What's going on here? Well, what sort of glory were they and are we readily enamored by? What's the glory of man, isn't it? the glory of, of worldly riches. But is that supposed glory really and truly glorious? Well, not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It, it won't satisfy your soul with joy and life. You know what the glory of man will eventually do? It'll kill you. And here's how. If you live in awe of the glory of man, craving and, and seeking and, and thirsting for the approval of other people, well, what happens? Well, you end up enslaved in an endless cycle of personal achievement and trying to measure up. And, and you never actually win. You, you never get to slow down or let up. Why? Because as soon as you gain one little bit of approval one moment, you have to double down your efforts to avoid losing it the next. And therein lies the great deception of sin. There's no rest for the weary. Just endless striving. Some of you probably felt that. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Friend, there's only one thing that can break us out of the insanity of the fear of man. What, what is it? It is developing a deeper and stronger fear of the Lord. Okay, of choosing to love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. And James hints at this twice in the passage. Whose name, look at verse 7, is honorable. Or full of honor, brimming with honor. Or who is the true Lord of glory in verse 1? Those aren't throwaway phrases or adjectives. James is reminding us the answer isn't you or anyone around you. Who is it? It's Jesus, right? He's the glorious one, perfect in beauty spotless in perfection, which means only his glory can satisfy your soul. If you chase any other glory, it will be the death of you. But if you fix your gaze on Jesus, friend, behold Jesus 
and are captivated by the awesome splendor of his person and work, you will find abundant life for your soul. And all the people and riches and glories of this world that otherwise deceive us, like they did James Hears, will grow strangely dim. Bottom line, James' point is that you won't see anything clearly. The deathly mirage of human glory included until you see Jesus. And if James Hears had been more captivated by God's glory, they wouldn't have been deceived into fawning over their rich persecutors. One of the reasons favoritism is a big deal is because it, it reveals the insanity of sin, okay, the folly of chasing the glory of man. Here's a third reason it's a big deal. Point number three. Look at verse eight with me. Favoritism violates the law of love. It denies the truth of the gospel. It reveals the insanity of sin. And even more significantly, it violates the law of love. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and are convicted by the law. Excuse me. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Let's make that clear. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the scripture James is quoting here is, is from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where, where Moses warned Israel against the injustice in context of being partial to the poor or deferring to the great in a court of law. So what's James doing here? Well, he's reminding us, friends, that love is the opposite of favoritism. But, you know, we don't often think that way, do we? We, we, we tell ourselves that, that we're good at loving this kind of person and just need to grow a little more in loving people who are, you know, different. <laughs> well, that sort of thinking, maybe you've told yourself that, really mask the severity of the issue, okay? That the problem with favoritism isn't that you're only loving people who measure up to your standard. The problem with favoritism is that you're not loving anybody other than yourself. How so? Well, if you selectively favor someone, you're not doing that for their sake, <laughs> You're doing it for your sake because of the way it makes you feel or what you think they can do for you. That is not love. What is that? That's selfishness. Genuine love gives itself to others for their sake, regardless of their ability to repay you, whether relationally or emotionally or, or financially. As Dan McCartney says, selective love of neighbor is not love at all. It's a cover for the attempt to gain advantage or benefit. And Jesus told us just how big a deal this was in Matthew 22 when, when he said the entire law of God is built on two pillars, two foundations, two commands, which are really two sides of the same coin. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the royal law, as James says in verse 8, because it's the law of our king. 
King Jesus, the standard of righteousness in his kingdom. And so James is reminding us here, like Jesus, that that favoritism isn't just a misinformed judgment or oops, I made some assumptions about that person. No, it's far more of a big deal. It's a violation of the law of love. It's a failure to give people the honor and care they are due as image bearers of God. And that means that the opposite of being, what, a judge with evil thoughts in verse 4 isn't just not judging or not assuming. What is it? It's positively loving, actively caring, aggressively moving toward the weak and the despised, and the messy, and and everyone who's radically different than you, Christian. Why? Because that is precisely what God in Christ has done for you. According to James 2, poor visitors to the church failed to meet up, measure up, to the standard of respectability set by James Hears, the, the law that they created to distinguish what was good and worthy of honor, rich people, from what was not, poor people. They created that law. But James is saying, guys, by that very act of judgment, you are failing to measure up to the law that ultimately matters, transgressing the law of God himself. If anybody's not measuring up to a standard around here, It's not the poor guy. It's you. But you know, I just put myself in their shoes. It's good to do sometimes because these letters were written to real people in real places. And and I can just kind of feel the defensiveness (laughs) rising in my heart. I, I can hear the objection because I've heard this in my own mind. And it goes like this. I'm not a lawbreaker relatively speaking. I'm a law keeper. Come on. I mean, I mean I, I'm sure I need to grow, and don't we all, and being a little nicer to people who are inferior or, excuse me, different from me. <laughs> but let's be honest. If we're going to talk about transgressors of the law, we should probably start with them. I mean, do you know what they've done? Do you, do you know what they are doing? I've never done that. I would never do that. If anyone's a transgressor around here, it's not me, it's them. So James, let's talk about them first, okay? Well, friends, it's the relative to me part of that attitude that reveals the biggest issue on the table here. And it's the point with which I want to end because James does. Point number four, the biggest problem with favoritism is that it exposes the absence of humility. It exposes the absence of humility. So think about the inner logic of partiality with me, okay? By definition, it treats people differently according to our assessment of their worth or value. So, where do we get the criteria for our assessments? 
Well, without fail, it's relative to us, isn't it? So if you're poor, it's because you make less money than I do. If you're rich, it's because you make more money than I do. If you're well-behaved, it's because you act at least as good, if not better, than I do. If you're badly behaved, it's because you act worse than I do. If you're a good parent, it's because you're doing what I do. If you're a bad parent, you're not doing what I do. And if you're a good leader, it's because you're making the choices I would make if I were in your shoes. (laughs) I could go on, but I hope you see the point. The underlying problem in all those scenarios is exactly the same. What? I'm the standard, right? My characteristics, my achievements. My my combination of strengths and weaknesses, the color of my skin, the neighborhood I live in, the kind of job I have, the kind of church I go to, whatever I am, I possess, or I do, or haven't done, that's the definition of all that is good and right in the world. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because you're not the judge. You're not the lawgiver, nor am I. The the standard of righteousness isn't who I am. It's who God is. Right and wrong are relative to him, not me or you. And, and, And what does that mean? Well, that means in the courtroom of heaven, we are all lawbreakers. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, God's law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. You know, I was so grateful and humbled uh, to preach this particular text because it reminded me that when I was 15 years old, That was the very verse God used to open my eyes. To see just how much I needed a savior. Because I was a very self-righteous young man. I thought of myself as a good kid. And I viewed most other people on balance That's what? Coming up short. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. You live like me, I'll extend you my favor. You fail to live like me, and and I'm smart enough to not call you out, but I will definitely find you wanting in the quiet of my own mind. And there was a pastor who preached a sermon on this very text for whoever keeps the whole law. but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. And the Lord had opened my eyes to see that something was missing in my heart. Maybe it's the very thing that's missing in your heart right now, friend. And that was the humility that recognizes all of us have come up short in the courtroom of heaven. The humility that recognizes I'm not righteous. Only God is. 
I'm a sinner who needs a savior. And this, this favoritism toward men that we've been talking about, it's, it's ultimately rooted, James tells us here, in a self-righteous absence of humility before God. We remember, it doesn't matter, he's saying, how many individual laws you've broken relative to other people. Even if you've only broken one of them, what are you? You're a lawbreaker. You're a transgressor. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass, fail. And even if you are one tiny degree off the mark of his infinite perfections, friend, you fail. I think Douglas Moo's insight is is really helpful on this point. If we view the law as a series of individual commandments, we could assume that disobedience of a particular commandment incurred guilt for that commandment only. But, in fact, the individual commandments are part and parcel of one indivisible whole because they reflect the will, listen, of the one lawgiver. And so to violate a commandment, even one, is to disobey God himself and render a person guilty, guilty before him. James is reminding us that I'm not the judge and nor are you. God is. And so instead of speaking and acting as if we are and bestowing or withholding our favor accordingly, we must speak and act, verse 12, look there, as those who are going to be judged. How does a person who knows they are going to be judged speak? Well, they speak and think and act with the humility that comes from recognizing that I need God's mercy and you need God's mercy just as much as that other person. It works like this. If you don't recognize your need for mercy before the judgment seat of God, it is invariably because you have exchanged his perfect law for an achievable substitute of your own. And when that happens, you will invariably practice favoritism. You will have to look down on some group of people for one reason or another because it's the only way you can maintain the illusion that you're superior, that you're sufficient, that you measure up. The root of favoritism isn't a lack of tolerance. It's the presence of self-righteousness. And so in contrast to all of that, And that pride and that arrogance, what does the gospel say to us, friends? Two things. First, none of us measure up according to the standard of God's law, right? The law that ultimately matters. You don't. The person you like to favor doesn't. The person you disfavor doesn't. None of us do. We all need mercy. And second... What's the second thing the gospel tells us? That in Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, God on high has lavished on us the mercy we desperately needed. Favoritism says your worth and value come from who you are, 
and what you've accomplished, and it judges people accordingly. The gospel says your worth and value come from who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and then loves people accordingly. Here's the bottom line. Please hear this. It's not until you're resting in the righteousness Jesus has given you that you will be freed from using other people to validate your own. He who has been, as Jesus said, forgiven much, loves much. He who has received mercy, delights to lavish mercy. The, the opposite of favoritism. Love for your neighbor can only grow in a soil of humility before God. That's James' point. I think we could summarize everything he's saying in this whole passage this way. Love replaces favoritism when our hearts are humbled by the truth of the gospel. That's his point. He doesn't just say, stop it. He helps us see how we can change. He's a good pastor. Guys, love will replace favoritism when your hearts are increasingly humbled by the truth of the gospel. But he warns us if we refuse to humble ourselves before the judgment seat of God, confessing our need for his mercy and and lavishing on others the mercy we found in Jesus, well, then the warning in verse 13 still stands. Judgment, the judgment of God on the final day, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. I mean, Jesus says as much himself in in Matthew 25. and, And for that reason, friends, do not show partiality if you want to receive mercy from God. He doesn't play favorites, and nor should we. Favoritism is a big deal. Why? Because it denies the truth of the gospel. It reveals the insanity of sin. It violates the law of love. And probably most importantly, it exposes the absence of humility. Okay, I warn you, there's a day of judgment fast approaching when you, my friend, will be humbled whether you want to or not. And so I urge you with James, humble yourself now. Otherwise, you will be humbled later. That choice is yours. So please don't wait for that day to be humbled. Okay, confess your need for God's mercy. Rejoice in the mercy he's lavished on you in Jesus and then love all the people around you accordingly. Okay, black or white, rich or poor, easy to love, hard to love. Practice that kind of mercy, friends. Flee from partiality. And if you do that, And walk in that kind of mercy, not perfectly, but faithfully, then you can be confident of the Lord's vindication on the final day. For the path of mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord, this whole issue of favoritism is deeper than we think. And Lord, we confess to you that so often our first response when 
challenged with the sin of partiality is to explain away our judgments and our valuations and our preferential treatment. We, we have a very quick trigger finger on self-justification. <laughs> and Father, I pray for our entire church right now. And I ask you, Lord, that both now in the quiet of our minds while we are separate and soon when we are interacting with one another and together, that you would search out and remove every vestige, partiality, discrimination, favoritism, Lord, particularly the silent kind that just puts its feet up and lives in the quiet of our own mind. I pray, Father, that we would see ourselves just like everyone around us as those who all need mercy. Lord, before your law, we are all transgressors. We're all lawbreakers. doesn't matter which particular laws we've kept or broken. We all need a Savior. And I pray that your mercy in Jesus, the way you've met our need, would empower us and equip us to turn away from favoritism to following you in loving and caring for and moving toward those that our world, with its values, is so quick to despise or disdain or judge or just politely distance ourselves from. Lord Jesus, no two situations are different. All our hearts are tempted in unique ways. I pray you would expose the lie of favoritism. Leave no corner of our heart unturned or unsearched. Help us, we pray, for your glory. We want to be a people who proclaim the truth of the gospel for the way we love instead of denying it. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.